Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known. You've revealed yourself to your fallen creatures and creations um, in us that um, you have spoken through your word. We pray that today, as we have it read and explained, we pray that by your spirit you would um, give us ears to hear. We pray that you would change us deeply for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I go, and the boy, while I and the boy will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the word wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered him, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up. And there, caught in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. That because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make you descendants, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Bathsheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's wonderful to be with you again today, and it's always uh, good to be able to spend time in God's word. Although, as you've heard, we've got a very uh, provo- provocative sort of passage we're looking at this morning that raises all sorts of questions. So I'm going to ask that God in his kindness will give us understanding of his word and uh, its implications, understanding uh, how we should think about this as we reflect today 
in the 21st century. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who does speak. And when we hear your word read, uh, we don't always immediately get what's going on or understand uh, how this fits into your plans and purposes. But we pray that as we consider your word today, uh, you might take this in some ways puzzling part of scripture and help us to understand how it is you speak to us uh, through what is happening here in Genesis 22 and that will be pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthened in our trust in you and what you've done through him. Uh, we ask it in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's common today, isn't it, to hear of uh, odd things that people do in the name of faith. Uh, Sue and I had the opportunity to be in New York uh, earlier last year, uh, just uh, on some study leave, and we went to the side of the Twin Towers. And of course, you know the story. Uh, planes, people who obviously had strong convictions and thought it was appropriate to serve their God to fly into those towers and destroy the lives of thousands of people. And you hear of terrorist bombers who, uh, suicide bombers, they strap explosives to their chest, uh, walk into the middle of big crowds and detonate them, killing lots of people around them. Uh, we know that there are uh, religions where if a child of that family abandons the faith, uh, parents uh, can actually think it's appropriate to execute their children uh, to honour their God. Let me say, Christianity is littered with its own examples. Uh, we're not free from people who've done rather strange things in the name of faith, thinking that they serve God. When you come to Genesis 22, are we looking at Abraham and thinking, here is a man somehow misguidedly taking a very strange step, thinking that he is pleasing God by that sort of action? And the answer to that is, is no. You cannot think that way when you read this passage. Let me show you why. Let's look at Genesis 22 together. Uh, here we have God commanding Abraham to do something. This is not something he's conjured up in his brain and thought, oh, how do I impress God? This is God speaking a clear instruction to Abraham. Verse 2, Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. God clearly speaks, it's recorded for us, this is what we, we have. Now that will inevitably raise a question, uh, numbers of questions. Can you believe in a God who instructs his servant to take this sort of action? I mean, can you trust that sort of God? And there are a number of unusual aspects to this passage, let me tell you. Uh, for example, the language the scholars tell us of God's instruction to Isaac is not so much strong command, do this or else sort of tone. Uh, the scholars say the tone is much more like this. Please take your son, your only son. There's a gentleness, even though the instruction is quite harsh. There are odd things about it. We know elsewhere in the Old Testament that God is implacably opposed to child sacrifice and the nations around God's people, around Israel, are condemned because of their practice in doing that. And yet here you have that instruction. But let me say probably the, the oddest thing about this instruction is it seems to go totally in the face of everything to do with Abraham up until this point in time. 
Now, we only spent one week last week, for those of you who are here, in Genesis chapter 12. But when you read through the account of Abraham from when he's called by God in Genesis chapter 12 uh, up until this point in time, this instruction flies totally in the face of where the story is going, where the incident is going. Let me remind you of some of the, the markers in the account so far in Genesis. In chapter 11, verse 30, we're told that Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren. She can't have children. We get to chapter 12. God promises Abraham that he will have descendants. And through his descendants, his family line, the whole world is going to be blessed. That's the promise that he's given. That promise is reiterated a number of times in the the next few chapters. Even Abraham is told, uh, through a son, he will have thousands of descendants. So many, it's like the stars in the sky, you can't even count them, or the grains of sand on the seashore. Incredible numbers. You get to chapter 17. God affirms his promise. At this point, Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. Tad old for having children, right? Uh, that's, that's the point being made. But God says he will do the miraculous, and he even names a son. He says, you'll have a son, you'll call him Isaac, which means laughter, Right? You'll have laughter in your It's a joke you know, that you can have children at this age. But God, by his power, is going to make this happen. Right? And everyone will celebrate. In Genesis 21, Isaac is born. Isaac, the one on whom the promises of God for the blessing of the whole of humanity in perpetuity, right, to eternity, Isaac is the one that this all depends on this one that we're talking about in Genesis 22. And that's the point being emphasised when in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now if you'd read through these chapters, you'd know that actually Sarah and Abraham had a bit of a false start. They thought, we're struggling to have kids. We better think of another way of achieving this outcome. So Sarah gives Abraham her... uh, maidservant, so to speak, and Abraham takes her on board as a concubine. Put aside the morality of all that, don't worry about that for the moment. But through Hagar, this maidservant, they have a child, Ishmael. So when it says here, your only son, if you've been reading through, you go, hey, wait a second, there's another one, isn't there? You know, (laughs) this isn't the only one. That's not the point being made. It's not that we've forgotten about Ishmael. The point is, this is the son through whom God said he is going to bless the world. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It'll be through Isaac, this son. Kill him. That's the instruction. And so what you have here is a situation where God has been making this sustained promise to provide Isaac and to bless the world through him. And now he says to Abraham, go and kill him. And you've got a promise which seems to be in total conflict and contradiction of the command. Okay, that's the, one of the key tensions in the narrative, apart from the other issues that flood our mind. Let me just for a few moments uh, take a close look at some of the details before I try and talk about what I think God is teaching us through his word here, the implications. Notice Abraham's response, verse 3 of chapter 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey... He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Now you know the way he must be feeling. 
As those of you who've been parents, who are parents, you know the way he must be feeling. But there's no hesitation. There's immediate and complete obedience at this point. And for three days, they travel to the mountain. And all you can imagine is the tension that keeps increasing with every step of this journey. It's an excruciating period. They arrive, and then Isaac gets to carry the wood that he is going to be burnt on up this mountain. And even the the dialogue adds to it. Verse 7, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, they're words designed to pierce a father's heart, I think. Abraham responds, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, is he just putting him off at this point? You know, like one of my kids when they were seven said, Dad, where did I come from? You know, and I said, Calvary Hospital, son. You know, <laughs> you know that is, it's sort of, is that what's going on here? The sort of answer to sort of turn away his thinking. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think Abraham at this point knows exactly how it's going to turn out or what God will do. But he is confident that God will meet this crisis and he will keep his word. So they get to the top of the hill. Abraham ties up Isaac and he's about to kill him. And we read in verses 11 and 12 that the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, said the angel. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And a ram is provided by God and Abraham names the place. Verse 14. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh, if that uh, conjures up an old children's song for you. My provider is what he says. So what's going on? I mean, what, what is happening here in this account? Let me talk about a few different features and Uh, reflect on it because the application when we think about the Old Testament you need to keep reading it in its context it's easy to drag it out and just apply it in a willy-nilly sort of way you know what's Genesis 22 here for having trouble with your kids you know we'll plan a trip to the top of Mount Lofty once a year and have a ceremonial reading of Genesis 22 should keep them in order for a while I would think you know Uh, that's not what this chapter is about that's not what's going on here but I want to point out a few things. Firstly, did you notice that this is the God who tests? Who tests? I skipped over verse 1, but let me take you back to that now. Chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Tested. Now, is this some sort of divine game that God's playing? You know, how much do you love me, Abraham? You know, jump this high, jump this high, no, a bit higher. And if you really love me, 
Yeah, is, is that the sort of God that we've got on view here? Do you love me more than your son? Prove it. Can I say, God is not like that. And you cannot think that way when you read through the scriptures. He's not petty. He isn't mean. He doesn't destroy the things that give us joy or love. But let me also say this. God does want to grow Abraham in his relationship with him. That is the overarching concern that God has, not just for Abraham, but actually for every single one of us. That is, if you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus at this point, can I say the prime concern God has for your life is that you might come into a relationship with him through what Jesus has done. That is the apex of his concern. And it's a good concern. It's an eternal concern. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, uh, God is primarily concerned that you become like his son and that he will continue to shape you like Jesus for all eternity. That is what God is doing. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29, they, they capture that in a brilliant way. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Unlike you, that is, I would love to avoid pain and suffering and heartache and difficulty. I mean, we're all like that. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing at one level to prefer. That is, we'd prefer happiness, uh, to have plenty of money, not to have conflicts. But being shaped like Jesus, it isn't pain-free. That's not the way it works. Uh, I have a friend who comes from a Hindu family background. He was reading the Bible with someone for a number of years uh, and interested, but not, uh, not seeming to get any closer to becoming a follower of Jesus. His wife uh, left him and divorced him, and his world came crashing down to the ground. And through that terrible situation, uh, he came to put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he, hear me right here, he would never have chosen that pathway, but when I talk to him, he talks about the over-surpassing the over value of having a relationship with God through Christ and the way in which God has brought him to himself and superintended for that purpose. Not pain-free, but God in his kindness brought him to himself. I read an article a while ago that was entitled this way. Uh, Make the most of your cancer. Strange title, isn't it? Christian man who wrote this article said, cancer is not a good thing. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's a part of being in a fallen world with disease and sickness and illness. He said, but... When you get cancer, and he was speaking as a sufferer of cancer, he said it has a wonderful way 
of focusing your thinking and mind and heart on eternal things. Wonderful way of giving you clarity and that he thought in the providence of God, God had enabled him to go in that sort of direction as a result. Friends, God in his mercy tests us to shape us for eternity. And there's no question that in this account, Genesis 22, remembering God calling Abraham and shaping and training and forming him, this is part of what God is doing. He tests Abraham. Second thing I want to focus on for just a few moments is what this teaches us about the true nature of faith. Uh, Christians, I think, are often incredibly confused about faith. Uh, I hear Christians often saying things like this, if only I had more faith, then I would see more answers to prayer and more, more miracles and wonderful things that might happen. It's a very common way for people to talk. And eventually what happens then is the focus of faith becomes them and how much they have. When you read the Bible, faith is always about trusting and obeying God. So if you have a promise from God, then you can be confident that God will keep his word. And when you're in a situation where you have no promise, you're still to trust a faithful God. Now come back to Abraham with me. The difficulty we have here is Abraham has a promise. God will bless the world through Isaac. And not only that, he has a clear command from God that seems to run totally against the promise. How does that work? In the midst of it, I don't think Abraham fully knew how it would work. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews reflects on this incident. Hebrews 11 verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. Abraham proceeds confident in the promise of God, knowing the clear voice of God that he'd heard on many occasions and knowing that God would actually overrule according to his good purposes and that he could trust him. That's clear here. Now what about us? How, how are we to think through the nature of promises of God and trusting him or where you don't have a promise, where you go with that, how you trust God? Again, let me uh, step into some pastoral situations I've been in. Sometimes I visit people in hospital whose lives are at fairly significant risk. And they'll say something like, I am believing God will heal me of whatever they happen to have at that point in time. Now, here's what's going on in my head. I have, I have a certain level of pastoral sensitivity to people in those situations. Right? Uh, but what's going on in my head is, where's the promise? Why are you thinking, where, is it, where has God told you that he's going to heal you from this particular ailment that you have that causes you to be in hospital. And most often it's not a promise. It's just a desire that they go on living, which is a good desire, but they speak as if they have a promise that God has told them they will be healed. I used to do uh, a lot of gymnastics. I just 
say that to you, probably defies your imagination at this point, but uh, I could do backflips and somersaults. I represented the state from age 13 to 19 years in national competitions. Uh, the triumph of my achievements was the national under-16 runner-up uh, in, I won't tell you, the year, you know. Uh, now, I've been able to, until recently, still uh, do handsprings, and I could walk on my hands, you know. I could walk across the front here on my hands if I really wanted to. Uh, I can't now. I'll tell you why. It's because I've got some problem in my left shoulder. I don't know how I got it. Uh, but what it means is I cannot bear loads in certain directions. And one of those directions is when I'm vertically standing on my hands with the rest of my body weight pushing down on the shoulder. Right? It is excruciatingly painful. Now, uh, you may wonder why I'm telling you this story, <laughs> apart from anything else. But, you see, God has not promised me that I will not get old. God has not promised me that my body won't wear out or decay. In fact, as far as I can tell, God has promised that I'm going to sag and bag and recede and you know, get weak and flabby and frail. Right? I've been warning my kids about this for some time. Right? This is the reality that is going to happen. That is the way that it happens. I've not got promises against that. Let me say, though, God has promised me that he will raise me to life if I have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will die, but God has promised that he will raise all those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus to life with him for all eternity. I have that promise, and that sustains me through the bursts in my left shoulder and other things that I'm going to endure as I get old and no doubt inflict upon my family. Hear me right, I'm not saying God cannot heal today. Don't, don't get me wrong. And I've seen situations where God has certainly done that. What I am saying is God has not promised it in his word. That's a difference. Faith is trusting God's word when you have no words specifically well, you trust in a trustworthy God. He is trustworthy. Let me take you to the final point. In this uh, account, Abraham names the place where the ram is provided and substitute for Isaac as the Lord will provide. That's the name of the noun. You, you pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 22. God himself will provide. That's what Abraham says to Isaac. Then in verse 14, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. To this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Literally, uh, this, this naming uh, reads this way. The Lord sees the need and meets it. That's what it means, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord sees the need and he meets it. Let me draw your attention to what I think is a very unusual feature in this account with Abraham and Isaac. Why does God require Abraham to take Isaac for a three-day journey to a place in order to kill him? What on earth is going on there? Three days to a mountain in the region of Mount Moriah in order to kill his son. Why doesn't you say, take him outside, kill him now? 
You would have thought that would have been the kinder thing to do, wouldn't you? I mean, it's not doesn't feel kind either way, but you get what I'm saying. I found one other reference to Mount Moriah in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just read it to you. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. On Mount Moriah. To this point in Genesis 22... I think Abraham speaks more truly than probably he could even realise. 1,500 years later, another son makes a trip up a mountain in the same location. And that son carried the wood that was used for his execution on his back. He was the son, uh, the only beloved son, the descendant of Abraham and Isaac, Jesus comes from that family line. He is the bearer of the promises of God. He is the one. And on this occasion, God doesn't provide another substitute because this son is the substitute. He is the one who goes up that hill in order to sacrifice his life on a cross because he does it so that our sin and the sin of the whole world can be forgiven in fulfilment of all the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to his descendants so that we might experience the blessings that were promised to him, to Abraham. Listen to how Paul the Apostle captures the language and the emotion of Genesis 22, when he speaks in Romans chapter 8. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Jehovah Jireh, God has seen our greatest need and he has provided for it in the death of his son on the cross. There are many things in life you can't fully get your head around and will create puzzles. I think Genesis 22, actually when you get into it, is one of those chapters you wrestle with it, you wrestle with it. But can I say the God who sent his only beloved son into the world to die for your sin and for my sin, who keeps his promises, he is a God who can be trusted. You can trust him. Let me pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, even the, the, the puzzling and confronting parts of your word like Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. But Father, we thank you that as we read your word, we see your abiding faithfulness, uh, commitment to your promises, your love uh, for the people of this world, and we know that's true for us as well. And Father, we pray for our part uh, that we'll keep trusting you, trusting your word and obeying it, but trusting you even when we don't have absolute clarity 
on what to do in any given situation or to know precisely how the future will unfold. Help us to be people who, because of your past faithfulness, and particularly as we see it in the Lord Jesus Christ, know uh, that you can be trusted to the end fully, uh, completely. Father, we pray you'll help us to do that in our lives today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.